wish to thank Merrick and Sue Jackson especially for making this possible, for making this visit possible, and we really look forward to your presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this, and thank you very much for asking me to come here today. And, and uh, I was really given more or less free choice as what I was trying to say. So I proposed this title, Recent Advances in Human Biology and Clinical Use, and because this is something that you know, really is close to what we're doing and to my main interests. So let's move on. Um, so I'd, I'd like to start by, you know, not obviously again showing you what human one is, you all know that, but what I want to emphasize here is that it's not so simple <coughs> as one might think, because there are six different circulating molecular forms of GLP-1. And I know that most of you do not know this and do not realize the importance of this. And I know this from the many collaborations we have with groups all over the world, where people simply do not understand this. And they don't understand if you start to measure the concentrations of the hormone, what you are actually measuring. And they don't even know what they should be measuring. <laughs> so what happens is that we have, of course, pro-glutagon molecule up here, and it has been cleaved then in the pancreas, differentially in the brain and the intestine. And in the pancreas, there may be a formation of this compound, which is the originally suspected structure of GLP-1 glucanic peptide 1, a peptide between two basic double pairs of basic residues, which was the canonical cleavage site. It is being formed. It is being formed from the pancreas in rather small amounts, but Nevertheless, uh, it is there. It is. And uh, so one possible form is the form 1 to 37. But people very often, and animals also very often, amidate this paracyclohexene group here again. And that one serves as substrate for the amidating enzyme. So that we have an amidation of the acid here. So in people, we generally have an amidated form of this. It's there. This is unlike several animal species, particularly rats. They don't very efficaciously amidate peptides, which means that they have a mixture of the 37 and 36 amide forms. Now, um, these two molecular forms are probably inactive, but since they are also circulating forms, if you measure them with your, your analysis, they will count. So in the glycogen processing through real GOP1, which is then the truncated form of this up here, the 78 to 107, 108 molecule. And so this is one form, glycine extended as we call it. But again, in several species, this glycine will donate its amide function to the preceding I mean classic kind of amide form instead. That is the biologically active form. And it's also biologically active. It's very hard to tell the difference between the two molecules, and it's not clear at all why nature amidates this, but it's a fact. Mice are quite good at amidating, pigs are not very good at amidating this. So in each case, when you're doing an experiment, you have to find out what you're doing, and then plan accordingly. So the next thing that happens is, as we was already alluded to, that dipeptidopeptidase 4, DPP4, cuts off these two amino acids, and this is a very, very expensive process, we'll come back to that, which means that very rapidly we also have a metabolite form. This one, 939, and again, this may or may not be amidated. Is it active? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that, and there are a number of cardiovascular actions that have been associated with this molecular form, 
This is something we can discuss. In this yeah, this kind of okay, so, so how do you measure these substances? If you just take an antibody against your B1, you know, which is not processing independent, as we call it, you'll measure all six forms. But you will, you will not have a chance to find out whether it comes from the pancreas or from the gut, and what the meaning is. You cannot interpret the substance simply. It could also react with the actual major proglucan fragment and, and any proglucan form also. So that's not a way ahead. It won't work. For, to, for, for accurate determination of these, you really need sandwich devices. There are a couple of sandwich devices available, and they will measure this molecular form. They're not completely specific, and there's a bit of a problem in, in having this molecular form also, or vice versa. And in each case, you'll need to know whether you want to include the other. If you're working with wraps, if you measure with a sandwich elixir that is critical depending on the annotation, you will have only half of the molecules. That's the condition. You may choose then to use an, another antibody here, which, which is reacting with the glycine terminal. But then you have to do two essays to get the total concentration. And that is the problem. So, so there are many, many problems when we actually decide uh, what we should measure. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So, Here's what happens if you inject GLP-1 into this, in this case, it's a group of diabetics, and we're giving them the largest amount uh, they can tolerate, 1.5 nanomoles per kilogram, and measuring the concentrations of the, some of the forms here. So here we're measuring intact GLP-1 with 7 to 36 amide form in people. And you can see that very little is formed of this, or is surviving of this. Here we're measuring the metabolite plus the intact form, and you can see that by far the majority is uh, metabolized into the metabolite. And this is a rapid process, and this claims that you know, the survival of the intact molecule is very, very short. It's a waste of good peptide to do it. But you still can estimate how much you gave these individuals, because you can measure the metabolite and then get an impression of what, how much was actually there. It doesn't act anymore. It doesn't work on the beta cell. But it was there. You know that you injected the right amount or the expected amount of it. So this is the process, and this conversion is extremely fast and occurs with a half-life of one to two minutes in people. Now the most important figure here is that the clearance is up to 10 liters per minute of plasma. And there's no organ, of course, that has a, 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 a plasma flow of 10 liters per minute. What that tells us is that the degradation is occurring everywhere in the body. There's never a steady state. Taking a blood sample at one end of the body will not necessarily tell you anything about the concentration in another part of the body. That's why these figures are slightly meaningless when we're talking about a software which is metabolized so rapidly. So, so, um, so that's, that's what happens here. Um, so the question comes up, why has nature provided us with a peptide that survives for so short, such a short period, and where you barely see any changes in the plasma concentration in the periphery if you either secrete it or inject it. Well, so it could look like this, and that's what I'm proposing to you. So we have an L cell here, and what we do know, that's a bilis, you know, So here's the L cell, it, it sees something out in the lumen here and reacts, it secretes to open one. And we know that this stored part of GLP-1 is intact. There's no metabolite in that. We know that. 
Um, then the molecule diffuses here and finds the capillary. And these are the endothelial cells of the capillary. And they express BPP4 on the endothelial surface. This is the membrane-bound protein. And it says they're ready to cleave into your blood. So in the veins that drain the gut, about a third or a quarter only of the CLB1 that was secreted here survives in the intact form. The waves are destroyed or transformed into metabolite. So then we enter the liver, and in the liver there's another DTP4 system ready to cleave and uh, destroy 50% of what comes to the liver. So now we're down to 12%. Out here in the circulation, a soluble DTP form as well. And that also, also causes some degradation of metabolism of the one so that eventually we're down to something like 8% reaching the peripheral targets, including the pancreas or whatever you have. So that's, of course, a very, very small amount. It seems a little bit ridiculous that this system should work. Let me emphasize right here that there is 8% of intact the one reaching these targets. So if you can somehow increase the secretion here, these, this 8% will still need something. You will have an increase of biologically active substance that can act via the endocrine group. But most of it, 92%, really doesn't do that. So what can it do? It can interact instead. The sensory atoms of the vagus nerves that express the tubular receptor. And that signal will then be transmitted up to the cell body here in the no-dose ganglion. And the projections then are into the nucleus of the solitary tract. And these neurons here will then be stimulated and either relay information to the dorsal vagal motor nuclei that again can send new information down to the pancreas or the gut or the stomach, or they can transmit information to the hypothalamus where we have other neurons that are responsive to this and will react, and these include nuclei that are involved in appetite regulation and glucose regulation. <coughs> and they can then descend with what we call the long vagal vagal reflexes here. So that's what it can do. So what should you measure, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Intact TLB1? No, because most often you won't be able to measure anything. Mm. So it's just a waste mm. of time mm. and money. You may be lucky if you get a very large unit to pick up a little bit of those at 8%, and then you may be happy. So, in other words, if you see something, it's okay, but most likely you will not see it. Um, but if you can measure the metabolite instead, then you're home safe. Because then you know what the old cell is actually secreting. Everything is turned into the metabolite, but that doesn't matter. It's like measuring C peptide or something for insulin instead. So that's a good measure of the secretion. But it is not only a good measure of the secretion, it is also a good measure of the action of GOP1 because of the ability to interact with the nervous system here. So it has already done what it should do before it got degraded and turned into a metabolite. That's why you should measure total GOP1. In fact, there is only one experimental situation where it's useful to measure intact GOP1. That is, if you are interested in dipeptidopeptidase for activity, because then you would like to know how much of the hormone survives in the intact form. If you're applying a DPP-4 inhibitor, how well does it work? How, how well does it do its job, which is to protect the hormone? That's actually the only situation 
So next time you go out there and buy an essay, please think about this. And don't buy these. In fact, essays, there are a couple of good ones, I have to say. Go for a total looking one essay, and unfortunately there aren't any good ones, but then you can buy two. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes me on to the subject of GOP ones. Christian, I want to introduce this because it is, I think it's a very, very important topic. And this is not because it's a part of, you know, cell biology. It's always nice to know how things are secreted because like a botanist, you know, you want to know how many leaves it has, right? You can sit there and spend all the time without using your head for one second. But, um, but um, actually, it is an interesting issue, and that will, I hope, be clear once we move a little bit ahead in this. So, what do we know about human creation? Unfortunately, a lot has come up in the most recent years. And um, the main, one of the main reasons for this is that my good friend and colleague, Fiona Gribble from Cambridge, uh, UK, managed to label the yellow cells that secrete GOP1 with that present dye, Venus, they call it, and introduced under the control of the protoglycopenosa, so she can find all cells that has this approval activity. And here they are. These are the L cells. Now they're fluorescent. That means that she can, uh, she can, she can uh, cut out the ethereum here and uh, isolate uh, single cells from it, and she can sort them by fact sorting. So that now she has for the first time in history a population of pure L cells. And what she then did, of course, was to map the profile. So she knows she has a catalog of all the proteins that an L cell can make. Have to know it's a mouse, it's a mouse, there are many differences. There are differences. But she has this catalog, which is extremely useful. The cells themselves, they look nice and pretty, but they are not very useful. They don't survive very well, they don't secrete very well, they don't behave very well. But they're very good at this single thing to map the expression potential of the cell. And they also, when she has them in isolation, miss this beautiful structure with a cellular process which reaches the lumen. They become little boring, round, globular cells, and you don't know where these proteins sit. And even if you could find out where they sit in the cell, it is irrelevant because it has lost its polarity. But it's still an interesting cell. And have a look at this. This is an L cell. And since she was trained as an electrophysiologist, she impales everything, of course, <laughs> and has also put an electrode into this poor cell and found that it has membrane potential around minus 50 millivolts. And then she puts glucose on it, and what does it do? It fires action potentials. Who would have thought that? The good old endocrine cells firing action potentials with overshoot and everything. I think this is fantastic. What it means is quite a different story. We'll come back to that. But isn't it pretty? <laughs> so, her catalog has enabled her to come up with this immense spur. I borrowed a slide from her. So, uh, here is a cell, and uh, as I already told you, this is highly misleading because her cells are small, rounded, globular cells that do not have any polarized uh, anything. So, but then she, she took the liberty, the artistic liberty of describing the cell this way. And one essential molecule that she found was the sodium glucose transporter 1, SGLT1. That would imply that glucose can enter the cell 
And as you know, in this transporter, it also co-transports sodium, two molecules for every molecule of glucose. And that means that there's a lot of sodium entering the cell. With sodium comes charge. And if you, if you allow positive charge to enter a cell, that is almost equivalent to causing depolarization. So that's what you have. You have a depolarization. Now, the glucose can, of course, also potentially be metabolized. And that is interesting because then it's generating ATP. And another molecule she found was the ATP channels that we also know from the beta cells. So now we have a potential for ATP to, to influence and close the KATP channels. That means that you don't have a, an efflux of positive uh, charge from the cell. And if you break that, what does that mean? That is equivalent to depolarization. So now we can amplify the depolarization of the cell. She also found a GLUT5 transporter, which means that fructose can enter the cell. And in principle, fructose can also be metabolized, and it is metabolized in the other cell, and may potentially influence the KTP channel and also the membrane potential by this mechanism. We have finished that story with the fructose now, and we've described all the details of it in a very recent issue of the Journal of Physiology together with Fiona. And, and uh, it shows clearly that there is a possibility or potential for fructose. But you know, quite frankly, I'm disappointed with I'm disappointed with fructose. I had hoped it would be as strong as it is. It's fairly weak. And it doesn't really behave the way we because what we are, what, what are we doing here? We are looking for substances that control L cell secretion. And why do we want to do that? That's because we want to stimulate L cell secretion and see what it can do, for instance, in the diabetic or in the obese individual. So that's what we want to do. And that's why I'm disappointed about fructose. So if anybody offers you a business deal with fructose, you don't. <laughs> so do you think that, you know, with the idea now of being banded about and developing the dual inhibitors of SGLT1 and 2, that that might affect the equipment? Yes, yes, and, and there are reports that, that particularly the combined inhibitors have this. It is not understood exactly why they do it, and I haven't measured it myself yet, and I would be very much, you know, quiet or comfort if, if, if I had done it myself. So I, I, I need to see that, but it's a very interesting observation, absolutely. Yeah. Um, another molecule she found was the voltage-dependent calcium channels. That's, of course, extremely appropriate because if you have a depolarization, you can also open these uh, uh, calcium channels and have an influx of calcium. And once you have calcium inside the cell, then, and this can be demonstrated also, then you can have the release of the hormone just like in most other endocrine cells. So this is, of course, a very essential uh, molecule. And then amino acids can also enter the system and become metabolized. And some amino acids are more interesting than others because some of them can also carry charge with them. And that could then also contribute to a depolarization. So, um, what happened here? Anything? I don't know. Okay, so she also found chloride channel. We haven't worked with that yet, and I don't really know a lot of it. Apparently, there's no equilibrium chloride across the membranes of the L cells, but how that can be useful, I, I don't know. But another interesting one is this one. That's Bambisic receptor and also has Farcoding receptors, M-type receptors. And they are coupled to G and Q, as you know. 
and TQ will then stimulate phospholipase C. You'll have IP3. IP3 can then operate on intracellular calcium stores and increase the calcium concentration without any influx across the membrane and without any changes in membrane potential. This is very interesting. Will this work? Let's have a look. And finally, GIP receptors are also present in the L cell. And they are coupled to GS and cyclic AFP. So potentially you have a cyclic <coughs> system here that could also be important. So um, all of these questions, uh, can you go back for a second? Yeah. So we published a, uh, looking at a DGAT inhibitor, yes. and the observation that yes. at least if you inhibit a DGAT, GLP-1 levels go up. That's been described by several groups, several yes. companies. So fatty acid metabolism may also play a role in the regulation of GLP. Yes, and why didn't I put a lot of you know, GPRs on this slide? Because uh, in the first place, uh, Fiona was not into this. But uh, <laughs> since then, we know that, that there are uh, several of them GPR-120, GPR-19, GPR-40, GPR-41, GPR-43. They're all expressed on the L cell. And we are painstakingly mapping each of these receptors and trying to see what happens to the other side. Some of them are very interesting. Some of them are very boring. <laughs> what about GLP-1 receptors? On the other side? Yeah. She won't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> um, so, so, so what she did, of course, was an epimetrics uh, survey of the whole thing. And then she has to go in and do the real uh, QPCRs for every individual and the kids to make sure that it has it, and she hasn't done that, she thinks. I think she has, but she won't tell me. So to get on with this, what we do instead is to use a perfused preparation of the gut from either pigs or from rats or from, from mice. We can do that and uh, then test all of this. And that's exactly what we do. This is what it looks like when we start the rat. And here is some results. So, what we're doing here is giving it glucose in the lumen. In the lumen. And what it does then is absorb glucose that we have an in so that we have an increase in the glucose concentration of the venous effluent from the formation. So it works, it absorbs glucose. As it absorbs glucose, it also releases GLP1. This is what you can see here. The other thing you can see here is that bombesin is a very reliable and powerful stimulus. This tells you that a GQ-operated mechanism with intracellular calcium is a very powerful stimulus for GQ1 I hope to make some of this one day. <laughs> okay, so if you if you look at the two together, you can plot glucose absorption and venous uh, glucose absorption and GQ1 secretion, and they show this nice and tight relationship. So as it absorbs glucose, it also releases GQ1. And if you give it more glucose right here, more glucose is absorbed. More GLP-1 is secreted, and they very nicely correlate with each other, uh, suggesting that this is associated. What about glucose in the vascular system? So here we have increased the vascular concentration, the arterial concentration, in, in, in flux concentration of glucose, as you can see. There's a little bit at 15 millimolar of glucose. It doesn't rise above if you increase the heat just about significance, but casting somewhat doubt as to the role of the circulating glucose and the regulation of glucose. This one serves to 
uh, help me to show that glucose can be applied repeatedly and you get the same response. And this is important because now we will put up some blockers to see what we can do. So here is an interesting experiment. alpha methyl glucose is a non-metabolized glucose analog. So it can enter the cell to get the sodium, but it cannot be metabolized. It cannot uh, activate the KATP channel system. Does it work? Yes, it works nicely. If you block the SGLT1 transporter, and you can do that with a compound called fluoridine, rather specific, then you can completely wipe out the GLP1 response. So this tells us that in ligand of the SGLT1 can do it, and it really is operated via SGLT1 because you can take it away with a specific enzyme. So what about glucose and fluoridine? Here we have glucose response. Here we have given fluoridine. It's gone. Ah, so it is indeed an important mechanism for cell secretion. Here we are addressing the question of these action potentials. So if you can take away the action potentials, what happens then? And you can do that if you block these sodium channels that generate the action potentials. You can do that with leukemia. So we did it. This is glucose before, this is glucose after. No, it's no difference. So I'm sorry that I cannot tell you a wonderful story about the importance of, of, the, of the action potentials, but this starts it, I'm afraid. Um, but what about the calcium story and the calcium uh, uh, channels? There we have the tool nifedidine that we can use to block these voltage dependent calcium channels. So glucose before and glucose after, the response is gone. So it's totally dependent on influx of calcium from the extracellular space. And then you can go on and can go on and can go on. Like this and this and that's what we're doing these days, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, we keep finding new interesting details. Uh, but now I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we are approaching the, the, the botany uh, stage also. <laughs> so, well, this is what we have now, and, and, and this is good all of it. But what about this side the game pieces? We haven't looked at that yet. And that's what we're doing here. So now we are moving to rat small intestine. And here we have a bromidesin, which gives this very, very nice calcium-coupled, Q-coupled uh, uh, response. And over here, it's a control to make sure that this preparation is working nicely all over. And here we have an IPMS that elevates the intracellular concentration of cyclic And you can see this is a tremendous response. And if you put even more IPMS, it secretes like crazy. So this is a very, very, very efficacious thing. But that's not all for this. The real purpose of this experiment was to compare the upper small intestine with the lower small intestine. Because there are indications that there may be differences. In fact, in Fiona's uh, profiling studies, she found that the proximal L cell, the proximal L cell was very closely related to the proximal K cell, that's what expression profile, and much less related to the distal L cell. So in other words, there are cells that are, you know, in, in terms of, of gene expression profile, much closer to the L cell than the other L cells are. So this is interesting. So this is from the proximal intestine. Nice response, And this is from the distal small intestine, because we can also diffuse the distal part of the small intestine and look at that. And you can see you can barely tell any difference between the proximal and the distal half. 
Isn't it true that there are more L cells used to be? Isn't it true that they express more of the progrupin? Isn't it true that the concentration is higher? Yes, it is true, all of it. But it doesn't do it in life. So you have exactly the same secretion profile for the upper and the distal half of this small L, the small intestine. And that tells you, of course, that um, any speculation of the rapidity of a GOP1 response after a meal or whatever, there's no need to invoke a distal origin for this. There's plenty of it from the proximal gut. What about PYY, which is co-stored with, with GOP1 in these cells? PYY is not secreted from the proximal gut, but it is secreted very much in parallel with GOP1 from the distal gut. And that, of course, has important implications because now we have real evidence of functional differences between these proximal and distal L cells. So it turns out that this is a very interesting story, and we went into looking at co-localization of the stuff here. So here we are looking at distal PYY and GLP-1 containing cells and trying to look at co-localization. And there is a complete, there's really complete overlap of PYY and GLP-1 in the distal half of the small intestine. But in the proximal intestine, there isn't hardly any PYY. There's a lot of GLP-1. So we have a GLP-1 cell out there that does not express PYY. And then we've mapped the whole thing, you know, because uh, so what about GIP and GLP-1, which was the been a lot talked about, and we didn't find very little of it. Now to study this in more detail, we and others have looked at um, the, again, the expression profiles of each of these individual cells that you can pull up. So the other laboratories that we were working with, they pulled out uh, GFP labeled um, uh, cells <coughs> that were uh, under the coexistence of kinin A few members used the proglucanon proglucanon. <coughs> and they, all of them had the potential to pr produce a number of other hormones also. That was a big surprise. And suggests that these cells are related somehow. And perhaps it's uh, developmental or differentiation um, mediated difference that arises. Remember that they live only for a few days uh, and go undergo a maturation that could be interesting. And what we did to start studying this a little bit further was we did, we used the diphtheria toxin receptor trick and equipped these cells with the, the human diphtheria toxin receptor and knocked them down. So if we knock the GLP-1 cells down, what happens then? Well, the other cells also are knocked down. CCK, neurotensin, down. Not GIP so much, never so much that. If you knock down the GIP cell, the other cells also went down to some extent. And if you knock the CCK cell, the same thing. So, so there is a relationship here, but this is what it looks like, not a lot for GIP and GOP1, as in terms of co-localization. CCK and GOP1, yes, 20% of them are co-localized and may actually secrete both, but the majority of them are on their own. So you don't, I mean, you don't really have to revise the physiology of these cells right now. DLP1 and neurotensin, again, 20% overlap. So some neurotensin can come from the other cell, some can come from cells that do not coexist. Uh, neurotensin is PYY, that's really rare to have a coexistence. So the conclusion from all of this is. The GLP-1 is secreted from both proximal and distal parts of the intestine and in comparable amounts. PYY is only secreted from the distal small intestine, so there must be a proximal and a distal L cell population. That's the main message here. 
And then, you know, as I said, you know, Tencent has its own, and so some overlap. CCK has its own, but again, there is some overlap. Uh, GIP and the one we really couldn't make a big case out of. Quick question. Yes. When you give a complex carbohydrate load, how much carbohydrate actually makes it to the distal small intestine? Very little. Very little, in fact. Uh, there's a huge capacity for digestion of disaccharides in the proximal gut, and there's a huge capacity for absorption of it. So that uh, the majority is potentially absorbed in the proximal gut. And when you looked at these L cells, what was the, I, it, how, how low did you go from glucose concentration to look at the fat? I mean, did you do a complete dose response curve for glucose? Yes. And how low does it go? There, I wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't in vitro be quite as, you know, say that this is what it is. I would go for an in vitro, in vitro study instead. And so, so uh, with a few grams, if you introduce them directly yeah. into the small intestine, you could get a huge response. That, that, that depends on the density of the gradient that you can create. It seems. Um, if you just drink two grams of glucose, you won't see anything. So, so what is your hypothesis about glucose effects, in the, about carbohydrate effects in the proximal versus distal? Do you think that carbohydrates actually having an effect distally, or do you think something else is controlled? So, so there are a couple of ways of looking at this. Acabose is one of them, yeah. and a disaccharide. Right. Because if you use acabose, then you know that you postpone the digestion and the load uh, of monosaccharides to a more distal site, and that causes but what about without? We're just normal physiology. Do you think that that the distal cells are actually seeing any glucose? No. So what do you think is controlling the that's secretion good. distally? <laughs> well, that's a very very good question. But let me complicate it even further. What about the colon? Yeah, well, that's right. Because you have an even higher density of L cells yeah. in the colon, yeah. and the density is highest where in the rectum. And I think it has protective, growth-promoting activities. This ELSA produces not only QB1, but also QB2, which is a very powerful stimulant of mucosal pro proliferation in the gut. And QB1 also does it. So the two can act together, uh, produce mucose and things like that. Local protection, that's what I think they're there for. We know that they don't contribute normally by how you know this. We took some patients that were collectomized and looked at their immune responses, and we couldn't tell any difference at all from non-operated controls. So they can generate the entire normal one response without a code. That, you know, it's, I know it's a difficult way of yeah. doing it, and you can, apparently, elicit uh, secretion from the colon with various substances, like uh, bile acids introduced into the distal colon. You can then generate a human response, which is quite uh, interesting. <laughs> But the normal physiology, I think it's a local effect. So now on to type 2 diabetes. And this is all that you want to do. I'm sure you all know this. This is the type 2 diabetes type. That's all that goes wrong. Here's an important thing, glucagon hypersecretion. GLP-1 can inhibit glucagon secretion. They are obese. GLP-1 can inhibit food intake, and so forth and so forth. It's a good idea to try this. But how good is it? And what would be the best way to treat type 2 diabetes? What is the best way to treat type 2 diabetes? Good question, isn't it? Or <laughs> well, I'm sure. Let's have a look. This is the 
what is it that happens here? Well, uh, if you look at it early, and you know, this, the diving transmission happens before wakeness. There are a number of extremely important features here. So one is the hepatic insulin sensitivity, and that has improved this, this uh, completely uh, agreed upon in all studies, and has a vast improvement. And I saw some fantastic figures when the hepatic insulin yesterday with Google, was, that was you, wasn't it? That, uh, <laughs> telling you it was went down to some 10% or 7% of what it was, or 14 or whatever, you know, and a fantastic improvement. So there's no doubt about this. And this is probably due to the perioperative calorie restriction because you can reproduce it in various ways. <coughs> That's it. The other very important thing is this. So people originally described these operations as being restrictive and not absorptive. And of course they are neither of that. They're not restrictive at all. Because what happens, you create a tube. There's no stomach any longer. That's a tube. So it's ridiculous to talk about gastric empty because there's no stomach. So please don't. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is that the food stuff enters the small intestine with a great speed and gets absorbed extremely rapidly. That's your absorption precise. That's what happens. Because of that, you have this abnormal exposure of the endocrine cells, and that causes an exaggerated release of GLP-1 and PYI. That then has effects of factors. So this is what it looks like. I, mean, I think these figures are so strong. So this is paracetamol, paracetamol absorption. It's a good absorption marker. There's no, there's no reason to be critical about it. It's used for that kind of absorption studies because it very nicely marks the liquid absorption, the liquid phase absorption. And this is what it looks like before the operation. This is what we have after the operation. This is a ridiculous curve. Have a look at it. The highest concentration is in the very first sample taken immediately after food intake. That's when you have the highest absorption rate. There's only one way of interpreting this, <coughs> that the food stuff is emptied. It rushes directly to the small intestine and is immediately absorbed. That's the only way to, uh, to interpret this data. <coughs> so this happens. Um, the next thing is to look at the secretion of these hormones that we're doing here. We had a group of type 2s and normal glucose tolerant individuals here, and then we're measuring GLP-1, and what should we measure in this individual? We should measure total GLP-1, mm -hmm. right? Yes, <laughs> But actually, in this case, you could also measure intact and get a very nice response. Some 10% of this only. But very significant. Okay, before the operation, there's flat secretion. That's because of the heavy, the, the heavy bodies we have here. And then after the operation, there's tremendous rise. These concentrations are very, very high. If you start an infusion to reach this concentration, and those people then up. So that's a very high response. It's up to 30-fold the area under the curve compared to the control situation. And the same happens in the controls. And what about insulin? Well, here's the curve before the operation. That's the typical type 2 insulin curve, as you all know. And this is after the operation of the left shift and the increase in the early phase. And what does it look like now, this curve? Well, it looks very much like this one over here, which was the controls the non-diabetics before the operation. Aha, so we can describe this as a normalization of the insulin secretion profile. Wouldn't you say something? So 
what is the association then between GOP1 and insulin circulating, and how can we analyze this? Well, we can analyze it using a tool, the GOP1 receptor antagonist, except in 1939, that's what we did. So we have people here, diabetics, uh, looked at before the operation here, and then one week after, three months after, and uh, then we gave them meals here, just before, just after, three months after, and for each of these meals, they either had an infusion of sodium chloride or extended nitrogen in So what happened? We took a lot of blood samples to measure this here. Then here we have the glucose values. So these were two new type 2 diabetic individuals with a fasting glucose at between 8 and 9. And a large glucose curve here with a large area under the curve. And then one week after, you can see that the fasting glucose is considerably improved. Here it's down to 6. Now we're all happy. And if we look at two-hour values, although this is a mixed meal, but still two-hour values, 10 million here, 8 here, 6.5. What more can you ask for? Then we give the antagonist. And what happens? Dramatic impairment of glucose tolerance in all situations. If you look at the AUC for glucose here, after the antagonist three months, this value is identical to this value, the pre-operative value. So in other words, with the after the antagonist, you lost all the benefits on glucose tolerance. What about insulin secretion? Here we have insulin secretion. This time it's depicted as insulin secretion rates, but it doesn't really matter what you look at here. So this is the calculated from C-peptide evolution or that. Um, the, the typical curve before the operation, and then after the operation, the left shift of the profile in the much higher concentration. What happens then after the antagonist? An impairment before, certainly a considerable impairment of the response after the operation. And again, this area under the curve here is identical to this one before the operation, so all of the benefits you had on insulin secretion by the operation were lost after the DOP1 receptor antagonist. So, that is a very good way of treating type 2 diabetes, as has been indicated in that, in that, in that in an increasing number of controlled prospective trial clinical trials now, where medical therapy is being compared with surgery. It's extremely embarrassing for the endocrine population of endocrinologists because uh, and the surgeons are completely intolerable to this net. So, but the question here for us is, of course, what is the mechanism? And, and it seems that GOP-1 and other gut hormones are involved here. So could we use this approach to get a similar therapeutic effect? And that is, of course, the, the, the idea. And either you could do that by administering the hormones. And here there's a very beautiful field growing up where combinations of peptides. There's also a dual agonist. That's a trick. That's a pharmaceutical trick. <laughs> but there's combinations. <laughs> Stimulation secretion of the gut hormones. That is the important part. And that is why we are so interested in the regulation of human secretion, because we want to do this. We want to stimulate the secretion and have a response like we see in art from the gastric bypass. That's why it's not botany any longer. It's really uh, clinical, clinically oriented medicine. So um, this is all that you can do. And uh, let's hope that we can go on and have some good things about it. Is it as wonderful as this suggests, as we have, as I am afraid I have said many, many times? <laughs> uh, so, what can you do about it? You can use a lot of uh, different approaches to treat 
And of course, there are small molecule activators that the pharmaceutical industry loves this, you know. But in this case, it has been extremely stubborn and difficult to prove. You can produce a tetanus. Yes, but you can't produce atoms very well. So that's not the term. Here's a success, that's the DP4 inhibitors, of course, that can increase this. So that's, that is a success. What about the other opportunity one agonist? So here's an extremely interesting one from Intarsia. Do you know LSAT mini pumps that we use for mice and rats? There's an osmotic pump that can uh, you know, provide the animal with something like 40 days or more. Uh, so, so this is a small stainless steel tube that has such a, an osmotic mini pump. And you just shoot it in under the sub into, into the subcutaneous tissue, and it stays there for half a year and provides you with a continuous supply. You know, they're using simply. That's interesting, isn't it? They will present their data at the ADA. I know because I've yeah, seen them. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's another one that's coming up. LB Blues have just made it to the European market now. They're very happy to get GSK. And uh, uh, Eli Lee here has a GLP1 FC fragment, Dula Blue type, which is on its way. If they survive the terrible crisis with, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the TZD together with Okay, um, so, so there are many possibilities here, but, uh, but let's have, so the question is, how good are they? This is really good. Uh, and, and the problem is, it's difficult to answer this question. I, I, even I don't know how good they are. That's terrible. Um, we will have the, the study, which is called the VEDA study, where the prototype has been used in a population of more than 10,000 people over five years, and that the study will terminate in one year, I think, we can expect the data. So then perhaps we will know. There are some caveats in that also. But here's a study that I like. It's from uh, Amsterdam. It's from Mikhail uh, Diamant. Um, and uh, what they did was to treat people with exenatide. It says 10 micrograms BID, which is the usual dose. But I know that they also titrated some of the individuals up to 60 micrograms per day. So that they had 20 micrograms two times you know, up to three times daily, because they felt that they could do better by titrating them harder. And uh, the control group was issued glandular treatment, and that was also titrated, and the, the person who did the titration or controlled the titrating was Hanelin Yukiyarina. Do you know her? She's yeah. from Finland. Yeah. She's a tough lady, yeah. so if you didn't have the dose, she would come after you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's perhaps, <laughs> the most, uh, that's perhaps the best titrated study in the literature. <laughs> so what happened? Well, things were good, because here we have 7.4 or something like that. And then it goes down to 6.5 in A1C, which is maintained for a year. And then they stop the therapy to see what happened with beta cell function. That was the purpose. Matthias Bunk was the first author. And you can see that A1C levels came back. They also looked at beta cell function, and we'll just come back to that in a minute. And then they just fortunately decided to continue the study for another two years and started again. You can see A1Cs again came down and very, very nicely maintained over a three-year period. So very nicely maintained over a three-year period. They looked at beta cell function by calculating the disposition index, which is insulin secretion corrected for insulin sensitivity. So that is the way to do it. You must do it that way, particularly if you have large changes in insulin sensitivity because the insulin secretion adapts. So what happened? After one year, not much of a change with acceptability. And not much of a difference with insulin. And after three years, 
not much of a change. Not much of a difference between one and three years. Perhaps a little bit of change to compare to a value. So what's the conclusion of that? Well, the conclusion is that you can maintain good results if you are careful and energetic. Um, are there any signs of beta cell protection or preservation here? Yes, because beta cell function was preserved for three years. If we compare with UK PTS and a lot of other studies, we would have expected a deteriorating beta cell function in this period. They didn't start out too badly, of course, but, but still, you would expect this to happen. So the conclusion is that maybe there is a protective action on the GLP-1 agonists on beta cell function. But if this is true, then it is also true that an intensified, largely more insulin therapy also has a protective action on beta cell function. And this is also supported by other studies. So my conclusion is that this, both, both of them have this. If you do it carefully, you can maintain beta cell function for up to three years. I think this is the best data set for the very difficult question of how good material agonists are in type 2 diabetes. I don't remember, were there differences in the glucagon response in the two groups? I don't remember either. I don't think so. I think I would have remembered it. That's my way of finding out these questions. I'm sorry, that I didn't understand the change. The change was from what time? So the change was from pre-beta cell function before the, before the start of therapy, from baseline. The change from baseline. All, all the bars are from change from base. Yes, this was what during therapy, which is ridiculous when you're using an insulin control agent, of course, and more or usually for that matter. So this is irrelevant really. These are the interesting changes from baseline. So, so now we have so things look good, right? Things look good. Can can you do one do anything? Everything, anything? No, and we knew that actually. So here we. Here we have a study in type 2 diabetics in a pretty large group, 55 of them, where we looked at the effect of intravenous infused GLP-1 to see what happens, what would happen to blood glucose levels. Very, very simple. But we divided them up into three groups. Those were basal and fasting glucose between 5 and 10, those between 10 and 15, those between 15 and 20. And then we infused them with GLP-1 for four hours to see what happened. And sometimes we extended the period up to seven hours uh, because this was relevant to the CY. So here, the group, this group, they came down to five minutes one of the normal glycemia after 120 minutes. And they stayed there because, you know, the glucose dependency of everything makes it safe. And then these guys came down and didn't quite make it to five. And we extended the infusion period, and then it still didn't come down below the line. Then these guys up here, they, they had the largest drop of them all. And they never came near normal glycemia in spite of prolonged infusion. And imagine that they had had a snack here or something like that. Drop glucose would have shot up. So it cannot do everything. So that's why you start to say perhaps we should combine things. Perhaps you, because after all, is GLP-1 responsible for type 2 diabetes? No, it's not. The deficiency, the problem that also the incretive effect, is something that comes after, comes in the person who develops type 2 diabetes. So you couldn't, I mean, it's really easy to say that you could revert the whole thing since it wasn't involved in the first place. I'm afraid I have to 
put it that way. So but then you have to ask something. What, what could that something be? Something, one thing could be insulin, of course. Another thing could be an SDNC2 inhibitor. Get this faster glucose down and let's see what happens. And it will work. So here's a combination of ELP1 and insulin. And uh, as you can see here, this is a study where people were treated for 12 weeks with glucotide, 1.8 milligram. Then if they made it to the target of seven, uh, they, that was okay. Then they continued on the glucotide. If they didn't make it, then they were also given a little bit of insulin better or continued. So what happened? So these are the A1Cs. This is the group that made it to seven. Very nice drop in A1C. Nicely maintained afterwards. This is the other group. They then randomized here to have either continue or to have a little bit of insulin. Then they came down to the other guys. So in, at the end, the result of the study was that if you start a person or a group of tattoos, you can expect the rocket type to bring some 60% of it to target. Quite good result. But if you're unhappy with that result, why don't you add a little bit of long-acting insulin, and now you can bring it close to 80% to target. Now we're approaching the success of the bariatric surgery. Ah, so there's a way to compete with these surgeries. <laughs> and here's one new smart development. That is a fixed combination of DOP1 and insulin. Of course, of course we in the we hate fixed combinations. We want to decide how much is in the serum, right? But, um, these pharmaceutical guys, they do it anyway. So here is a mixture of insulin and rocket time, up to 50 units here in 1.8 milligrams. And uh, a study, it was a big one, but a lot of types, with the combination arm here, this is the insulin arm, this is the, the rocket time arm, and they titrated those with insulin to between four and five. If they had less, they could click up a few steps, or and if they had more, they could click down a little bit. Um, so what happened? These are the doses. Insulin alone, they ended in this titration regimen with 53 units. Those are the combinations. Significantly, it's 38 units. So those with rapid alone, up to 1.8 milligrams, that's the protocol. The other guys took a long time to finally make it up to 1.4 milligrams, 12 weeks. Got a little bit faster now. So A1C, how did that develop? That's, of course, the exciting thing. So here we have it. The ragutide takes time very nicely, but to just below seven, uh, insulin could do the same. These are both good results, of course, but the combination could do down below 6.5 pounds. Exciting, exciting. And if you take the uh, target, the percentage which you target, 60% for kilo one alone, the seven, 65 with insulin, very good insulin therapy, this. 81%. And if you take the target of 6.5, 40, 47, it's 70% making the target of 6.5. That is as good as it is, what I would say. So there must be a problem. What about fasting glucose? Well, again, you will see, GLP-1 alone cannot do it. That's exactly what I said. It cannot do it alone. Insulin can do it, of course. That's how you type it, although you know, it's hard to get to the, to the real target. But anyway, ah. QT1 lowers the body weight. Insulin increases the body weight as expected. The combination. Uh, what about hypoglycemia? With that drop in A1C, that must be hypoglycemia. Here we have it. QT1 does not cause hypoglycemia. Insulin does. 
the combination has a significantly low rate of hyperglycemia, and these are very low anyway. So that is, of course, extremely promising. Uh, and what about the nausea? No one causes nausea? Not a lot of this study, only 10%. Insulin does not. But how about the combination? The nausea is gone. What's that kind of a miracle? No, that's the titration, which was so slow that you avoid nausea reaction. So the real point here is that you know you can combine these things and then you can design more or less the way to treat unfinished effect. Uh, you can put insulin onto GLP-1 receptor agonists, you can put GLP-1 onto insulin. You'll have significant improvements in A1C. In this case, you prevent the increase in body weight that you would otherwise have with insulin. In this case, you can reduce the body weight. Here, you have a, both, uh, in both cases, you have a very low risk of hyperglycemia. So you can decide what this patient should have a weight loss or an improvement in A1C by uh, this combination. So, my conclusion is. To be successful, that is, treatment should be multifactorial, and I think it's true. Address both insulin sensitivity, bypass does this. GLP-1 is involved, but GLP-1 is perhaps not always enough. And then you can combine it with insulin or SGLT2 inhibitors. And this is, of course, also true for the BP4 inhibitors that should also be combined if you cannot solve a problem with them. So, the results are promising. Thank you very much.